0: Part 2. Building Union Power Chapter 7. Black Unions You have to know a black. He wants someone to be his boss. They can't think quickly. You can take a baboon and learn him to play a tune on the piano, but it's impossible for himself to use his own mind to go on to the next step. Aripolis, General Secretary of the Mine Workers Union While 1970s politics was dominated by June 76 and the ideology of black consciousness, the 1980s were to see the rise of a new scale and intensity of domestic oppression. At the heart of this new struggle was organized labor. In order to understand the rise of black trade unions, it's necessary to look beneath the everyday politics of appearances to deeper changes in the character of the South African economy. The first major period of black trade union activism had been the economic boom between the mid-1930s and the end of the Second World War, which brought black workers into the cities and factories. The power of black labor, however, was severely constrained by racial legislation that denied them recognition agreements and collective bargaining rights. In the 1950s, an ANC-aligned South African Congress of Trade Unions, SACTU, emerged to fight simultaneously for higher wages and for political freedom. Sector unions, plagued by weak shop floor organization, were successfully repressed in the 1960s. That decade also saw structural changes in the economy that would create the conditions for a more sustainable wave of union organization. South Africa grew at unprecedented rates and the 1960s brought a concentration of capital, the emergence of new monopoly industries, and the rise of powerful new parastatals, or state-owned enterprises. These developments inevitably brought in their wake a growing black working class. This period also saw organizational innovation in the unions. Many activists focused on organization itself as the key to successful unionization, and they built resilient shop floor structures of representation and mobilization. This new structure of accountability, in which union officials were not allowed to act without the mandate of their workers, bolstered the resilience of unions in the hard times ahead. They were far less vulnerable than their 1950s predecessors to intimidation and harassment or to the co-opting or repression of a small number of union leaders. When the post-war boom came to an abrupt end in the early 1970s, after massive oil price increases by the OPEC countries precipitated a global economic crisis, newly powerful black workers confronted businesses that were looking to cut employment and costs. The outcome was a dangerously volatile labor environment, exemplified by an unprecedented series of strikes in Durban in 1973. In such circumstances, government and business alike began to consider controversial reforms to the country's outmoded labor relations machinery. Business was increasingly dependent on a stable and skilled black workforce. Until black unions were allowed recognition by employers, they would be unable to enter into formal and binding negotiations with bosses in an orderly manner. Industry after industry would continue to be dogged by unofficial or wildcat strikes that were disruptive of production and costly for business. Business leaders, moreover, saw black labor as a potential ally in the battle against white unions. A highly organized white working class had, over decades, used collective bargaining to cement its advantages over black co-workers. Organized whites had benefited historically from legislation that protected them against skill and wage competition from blacks. In the harsher business climate of the 1970s, companies lobbied government to dismantle job reservation mechanisms that excluded black workers. By recognizing black labor and removing job reservation for whites, business could hope to see both a more orderly process of negotiation of working conditions and wages and a sharp downward pressure on the wages of skilled white workers who had been insulated against competition from their black peers. For all these reasons, black union recognition was a necessity that government could postpone but not avoid. As in every other industrial society, government had to act to bring order and rationality to conflict-ridden relations between business and labor in what sociologists sometimes describe as the institutionalization of class conflict. Rather than allow latent antagonisms between workers and bosses to break out into Frenzied wildcat strikes, precipitating violence and worker resistance on the shop floor, a new labor regime was needed to create a more orderly and efficient process for resolving disputes. Only once black workers were brought into such a coherent framework of industrial relations could the economy be protected against further unnecessary losses. The payoff from a stable system of industrial relations would eventually make such a settlement worthwhile for almost all parties. Business could enjoy good relationships with a skilled, flexible and productive workforce. Black workers would secure higher wages and better working conditions. And the state would benefit from a buoyant economy and a stable society not racked by violence and disruption. The only losers would be organized white labor. The mining industry exemplified the new challenges of labor relations. Even in the 1970s, a high degree of violence and disruption characterized the mines with one strike at western deep levels in 1973, resulting in 38 miners being shot, 12 of them fatally. By the late 1970s, disorganized worker discontent was reaching crisis proportions and employers were becoming divided over how to respond. The Gold Producers Committee, GPC, of the Chamber of Mines was finding it hard to reach consensus on appropriate wage increases for the industry. Anglo-American and JCI were willing and able to pay higher wages than mining houses like Goldfields, Gencor and Clive Menel's Angloval. In 1982, Goldfields and Gencor were to suffer two waves of damaging strikes involving tens of thousands of workers, in the worst industrial unrest on the mines since the Great Strike of 1946. The issue of unionization was on everyone's mind, and it was no longer rejected out of hand. The reasons were both apparent and convincing. Workers had no channel for their many grievances. Resultant explosions of discontent were hard to predict and costly to clean up. Strikes had an amorphous and spontaneous character that frustrated mine managers. According to the historian Vic Allen, there was no evidence, in the 1982 unrest, of even the semblance of a strike organization and no sign of any leaders. Nevertheless, the workers themselves exhibited a high degree of solidarity in pursuit of a clear industrial objective. It was Anglo-American that took the initiative in creating a new system of industrial relations. Some Anglo-executives already strongly supported modernization. As technologies advanced, the company's mine workforce was becoming increasingly skilled and stable and Anglo wanted to retain these skilled workers within the company. It wanted wage negotiations to proceed amicably and settlements to be implemented reliably without unexpected and costly industrial disputes. Some Anglo executives believed there was the prospect of a win-win solution A better trained, well-motivated and cooperative workforce that negotiated with the employers rather than fighting the bosses would pay dividends for the company. In the economic conditions of the time, of course, with falling gold and diamond prices, bargaining power would anyway remain overwhelmingly with the bosses. Anglo-American therefore felt confident in pursuing a strategy of engagement with and encouragement of worker organization. Some other mining houses, on the other hand, notably Gen and Goldfields, did not favor union recognition and preferred to continue with repression. The confidence of Anglo-American flowed in part from careful planning that lay behind its industrial relations vision. Though this strategy was later to become associated especially with one man, Bobby Godsell, it followed from a commitment on the part of Harry Oppenheimer to address the industrial relations crisis. Anglo-American was a dominant force in the industry. It was directly responsible for 40% of all gold mining and for perhaps 70% if all Anglo-controlled and administered companies are included. Anglo was also responsible for more than 70% of uranium mining and through its sister company De Beers, it was the leading player in the international diamond business. And so it was that Anglo, as this complex business entity was and still is commonly known in South Africa, would become the decisive actor in the unionization of the mining industry. Anglo-American was established by Ernest Hoppenheimer in 1917. Over the next 50 years, under Ernest and then his son, King of Diamonds Harry Oppenheimer, Anglo was to establish an unprecedented dominance in the mining of gold, diamonds and platinum. By the mid-1980s, Anglo employed more than a quarter of a million people in gold mines, 25,000 in the diamonds industry, and perhaps a 100,000 others in other sectors such as platinum and coal. Anglo introduced vertical integration that slashed across the mining sector, taking over or controlling mine finance houses, manufacturers of explosives, steel product producers, the plantations on which mine pit props were grown, and even the chemicals and munitions industries that provided a market for the mine's outputs. In the involuted economy of apartheid South Africa, moreover, Anglo spread its control and influence horizontally across a range of other sectors. Car sales, McCarthy. Insurance, SA Eagle. Department stores, Edgar's. Brewers, SA Breweries. Liquor stores, Cramer, Peanut butter, yum yum. Viniculture, Vergelegen in Boschendal, Sugar, Hewlett's, and Mushrooms, Denny's, all fell effectively within the Anglo stable. In sectors where Anglo became dominant, such as in paper, where Anglo's mondi became a near monopoly, the company integrated production vertically, controlling the whole sectoral product cycle from forestry plantations at one end to publishers and newspapers at the other. By the mid-1980s, Anglo had 1,350 subsidiaries and associated companies with a variety of relationships to the parent. It employed 140,000 workers in the food, beverage and retail industries, and around 50,000 others in assorted enterprises within South Africa. Overseas, the Anglo empire extended as far away as the Americas and employed perhaps 30,000 people outside South Africa. The consequence of the emergence of this giant was an economy with a curious structure. The broader Anglo Empire was responsible for as much as a quarter of South Africa's economic activity. It was therefore of almost equal economic stature to the state itself, to the sum of government departments, provincial administrations, state arms manufacturers, railways, the iron and steel industry, chemicals giant Sassel, the post office, and the energy parastatal Eskom. Beyond these two great behemoths of state and Anglo, there were just three other substantial business groupings, each connected to a financial house, Old Mutual, Liberty Life, and the heartland of Africana Finance, Sunlam. but none of these relative minnows came close to the economic power and scope of Anglo. At the heart of the Anglo empire were two technically separate companies, Anglo-American Corporation and De Beers, together with a third family investment vehicle called E. Oppenheimer & Son. While formerly distinct enterprises, AAC and De Beers fell under the effective control of E. Oppenheimer & Son as a result of a system that combined cross-ownership with cross-directorships. In the mid-1980s, the giant Anglo-American corporation owned almost 40% of publicly tradable shares in De Beers, giving it effective control over the diamond trader. De Beers, for its part, owned almost 35% of Anglo-American corporation and Oppenheimer & Son owned another 8%. Together, De Beers and Oppenheimer could therefore be confident of control of Anglo. So long as the boards of the two companies supported the Oppenheimer family's dominance, it was the family's own vehicle, Oppenheimer & Son, that in effect controlled the entire empire. A pattern of cross-directorships between De Beers and Anglo-American Corporation sustained this system of family control. The chairman of AAC after 1982 was Gavin Raleigh, an Anglo-lifer and former personal assistant to Harry Oppenheimer. The chairman of De Beers was Julian Ogilvie-Thompson, who had likewise once been Oppenheimer's PA. Raleigh was also a director of De Beers, and Ogilvy thompson was also a director of AAC. Indeed, the latter would succeed, Raleigh really, as Anglo-American Corporation chairman in 1990. Both men were on the board of Oppenheimer and Son. This pattern of cross-directorships was repeated across the board's memberships. Nicky Oppenheimer, Harry's son, was deputy chair of both Anglo-American Corporation and De Beers, and a director of Oppenheimer. H.R. or Hank Slack, third husband of Harry's daughter Mary, sat on all three boards, as did G.C. Fletcher and Harry's English cousin, Sir Philip Oppenheimer. In 1982, an ageing Harry Oppenheimer retired as Anglo-American Corporation Chairman, and in 1984 he also left De Beers. Though he continued to follow the Empire's key strategic decisions, he could no longer control the actions of the board, nor, given his various limitations, could his son Nicky hope to do so? Indeed, the Anglo empire was now so large that it would have been foolish to attempt to replicate the personal power of the two great Oppenheimers. Instead, Harry put in place a system of quasi-family control stabilized through the system of cross-directorships. Family was understood in a broad sense to include Hank Slack, cousin Philip and the cream of the Anglo lifers, people like Relly and Ogilvy Thompson who were as good as family. At a lower level in the pantheon of Anglo management, the Oppenheimers also enjoyed the loyalty of lifers such as E.P. Gush, a Rhodes Scholar who became head of Anglo-American Corporation's Gold and Uranium division, and later the Managing Director of De Beers. Peter Gush would be one of Cyril Ramaphosa's key adversaries in its conflicts on the mines. Anglo was not just an economic giant. It was also a major political presence, although not one offering any very clear sense of moral purpose or coherent national direction. What purportedly united the occupants of 44 Main Street, where Anglo's corporate offices were located, was a belief that social modernization and economic development went hand in hand. A thriving market economy on this view would break down the racial divisiveness of apartheid, create a black middle class, establish permanently settled urban black labor, and destroy restrictive practices such as the color bar. The modernization of industrial relations was just one example of the supposedly benevolent historical power of a developing market economy. A distinctive political culture evolved within Anglo's Johannesburg offices. The main street lifers were white men who imbibed the tacit knowledge of what is and what is not good practice in business and politics from the everyday deliberations around them. This entire culture was implacably antagonistic to the ruling philosophy of the National Party while remaining ambivalent about the character or reality of the exploitation of black South Africans. The NP, viewed through Anglo's lenses, was committed to something close to national socialist economics and remained suspicious of a private economy dominated by English capital. The natural economic home of the Afrikaner-dominated NP was indeed the state and the giant state-owned parastatals. It used these instruments to soak up the Afrikaner unemployed and ultimately to propel them into the middle-class life that their English-speaking peers had long enjoyed. The NP's economic philosophy was curiously close to that of the ANC, with both favoring public ownership of the commanding heights of the economy, widespread state interventionism, and exercises in grand social engineering. The primary focus of Anglo's political engagement was to support the free enterprise system against its detractors among Africana ideologues. Of course, the market economy in which Anglo actually operated was a system of privately owned cartels and computer exploitative monopoly producers rather than the free market utopia beloved of classical economists. What the Anglo establishment feared above all was the nationalization and social engineering that the NP often seemed on the verge of unleashing. In 1963, Oppenheimer became sufficiently fearful of the intentions of Prime Minister Forwut that he allowed Ferrarala Mainbo, a part of the Africana Sunlum Group, to buy General Mining and Finance Group, later Gencor, in order to stave off a perceived threat of nationalization. Through this action, he also achieved an important symbolic advance in the Africana economic empowerment that he was keen to foster. The NP establishment, moreover, was culturally alien to the Anglo elite. Harry Oppenheimer received a classical English education, rugger plus long division, at Charterhouse and Christ Church, Oxford, and Nicky followed a similar path from Harrow to the house. Although most wealthy English speakers went to local equivalents of English public schools and took their first degrees at the white universities of Rhodes, Natal, Cape Town or Witwatersrand, Anglo high flyers were more often than not Oxford men. Taking advantage of the Rhodes Scholarship established by mining giant Cecil Rhodes, Anglo's best and brightest became associated with rowing and rugby blues and came home with second-class degrees or occasionally mediocre first-class degrees from Oxford's intellectually less demanding degree schools, such as Geography or Philosophy, Politics and Economics, the PPE. Intellectually and culturally, the national party that governed without break or serious opposition after 1948 was formed through the Afrikaans medium school system and in universities such as Stellenbosch, Pretoria and Potchefstroom that offered their own distinctive version of elite education. The analysis of power elites in other societies has often stressed the shared institutions and backgrounds of leaders in different parts of a society. See Wright Mills, famously argued of 1950s America that its three seemingly antagonistic military, business and political elites were in fact brought together by commonalities of background education and culture. In contemporary France, likewise, it is purportedly the networks and commonalities of understanding generated within elite educational institutions that create unity among business and government leaders. And in Britain... It is the public, i.e. private schools and old universities that generate shared perspectives and values. If such networks do in reality exist and bring benefit to their members, South Africa's whites were disadvantaged by their absence. The networks that one would commonly expect to find between business people and their peers in government, the military and politics, were fragile and thin. Afrikaner and English elites did not attend the same schools and clubs, gather at the same social functions, worship in the same churches, or holiday in the same resorts. The Oppenheimers were powerful and rich enough to project their political fancies onto the world. Harry Oppenheimer committed substantial resources to the Progressive Party formed in 1959, whose members became known as Progs. The party was initially dominated by Cape liberals and professionals, but soon it garnered a curious constituency in the wealthy northern suburbs of Johannesburg under the guidance of quasi-liberal opinion formers such as Irene Menel and Helen Sussman. It went on to develop a robust form of parliamentary opposition to certain apartheid doctrines. The party's members could not, however, conceive of the abolition of separation between racial groups The notion of one person, one vote in a unitary state remained an abstract and distant fantasy. Anglo was also a driving force behind the South Africa Foundation, created at the end of 1959 to shape foreigners' perceptions of South Africa as an investment destination. Here, Anglo showed its willingness to work hand-in-hand with Afrikaner capital where common interests were at stake. The Oppenheimers, as we have seen, were also behind the Urban Foundation, an organization dedicated to lobbying and advocacy as well as to developmental interventions and ostensibly somewhat to the left of the SA Foundation. In later years, Anglo was to complete its do-gooder portfolio with a vaguely leftist consultative business movement and thereby cover almost the entire ideological and intellectual spectrum. At the highest levels, The estrangement between Anglo and the National Party continued. It was manifested in the limited interaction between the most powerful businessmen and politicians in the land. Harry Oppenheimer was chair of the South African Institute of Race Relations, which the Oppenheimers inevitably had founded in 1934. In this capacity, he invited legendary U.S. politician Henry Kissinger to attend a conference in Johannesburg in the early 1980s. He also invited President P.W. Buerta to deliver a speech. When the three men had a private discussion afterwards, Oppenheimer's aides remarked that this was the first time that Harry Oppenheimer had met a South African head of government just to sit down and talk. Anglo's social philosophy detailing the benevolent relationship between capitalism and social development was, of course, open to ridicule. The Oppenheimers sometimes presented their companies as enemies of apartheid. Ernest and Harry each served as opposition members of parliament protesting against the evils of segregation. At the same time, Anglo was at heart a mining house whose profits were built out of the exploitation of migrant workers from across the southern African subcontinent. In reality, Anglo mines were just as cruel in their operation as those of supposedly less salubrious mining houses, serving up the same fare of tuberculosis, crippling injury and racist brutality. The Oppenheimers and their senior managers, therefore, remained open to charges of bad faith. Nelson Mandela captured the bitterness that Anglo's seeming hypocrisy provoked very well in this 1953 comment. Rather than attempt the costly, dubious and dangerous task of crushing the non-European mass movement by force, the Oppenheimers would seek to divert it with fine words and promises and divide it by giving concessions and bribes to a privileged minority. Main Street's intellectual elite, however, proved impervious to insult and ridicule, perhaps because its membership was so selective and its self-confidence was based on decades of business success. While it would be a mistake to accept Anglo at its own moral self-estimation, it would be equally wrong to underestimate the corporate officers' sheer intellectual verve and muscle. Even before the 1976 uprising sent shock waves down Main Street, Anglo turned its institutional mind energetically to the causes and significance of the 1973 waves of strikes and to the increasing militancy on the minds that they threatened to prefigure. Oppenheimer himself began to focus on the reform of industrial relations and on a wider but related project of modernizing the economy. Anglo and its associated companies needed permanent and skilled workers, the replacement of at least some hostels with family houses and the removal of color bars that drove up the price of skilled labor. Modernized industrial relations, it was quickly hypothesized, improve workforce productivity and protect the mines against any upsurge in labour unrest. These were complex and untested suppositions, but Anglo always recruited the best and the brightest from the white English language universities to take forward its ever-changing project. Few 1970s executives at 44 Main Street in Johannesburg were ever going to become political liberals in the contemporary European sense. Fewer still could conceive that black South Africans would be running their country through an ANC government well within their lifetimes. All the same, in the aftermath of the 1973 strike wave, Anglo recruited some young executives with exceptional political skills and vision. Three recruits in particular were to make a big mark on the political side of the company. First, liberal activist Alex Borain was hired in 1973 as a labor consultant, to think in fresh ways about industrial relations challenges and how to avert impending international investment and economic sanctions. Second, Anglo recruited Zach de Beer, a career politician from the Progressive Party who identified weaknesses in the political profile of the company and brought greater political sensitivity to its actions. He was soon to gravitate into the inner circle around Oppenheimer. A third figure who joined the company in January 1974 was to have the longest-lasting effect on Anglo's industrial relations culture. The 21-year-old Bobby Godsell did not have a conventional Anglo background, coming from a working-class family and having studied philosophy at the University of Natal. He had also completed an ambitious master's dissertation on liberal ethics at the University of Cape Town. Among his roles at Anglo was to consider how the corporation should respond to growing calls for the recognition of black unions. Godsell and Bahrain conducted a comparative study of labor organization, primarily in developed countries rather than in genuinely comparable cases, and produced an Orange Book that concluded that black union recognition was now a necessity. Although he was to remain hesitant about wider political reforms, Harry Oppenheimer was already disposed towards industrial relations modernization and he received the report favorably. In 1975, in a speech to the Institute of Public Management, Oppenheimer had committed himself publicly to black labor organization on grounds that Godsell later considered self-evident. You took them away from the whites or you extended them to the blacks because it was completely illogical to say unions were good for white workers, but not good for black workers. Godsell and his boss, Christian Dutoy, lobbied compellingly for the creation of a commission of inquiry into labor relations, something the Department of Labor established in 1977 as the Vihan Commission, after its chair, Professor Nick Vihan. This was a time of grand commissions. Also reporting for the first time in 1979, The Rickett Commission was established to explore responses to the country's manpower planning crisis. Rickett argued that a permanent black presence in the white cities had to be accepted, but nevertheless reaffirmed a case for influx control. With a clear distinction between permanent and temporary residents, those qualified for residence could be given workplace rights and limited political representation, for example in township government, and job reservation for whites could be scrapped. The Vian Commission offered a more forward-thinking and cogent analysis. Vian was a lawyer and labor relations expert and a key advisor to Labor Minister Fani Buerta. In 1977, in the aftermath of intrusive U.S. interventions in the behavior of its South African-based multinationals, he persuaded the minister that the entire system required overhaul. As it happened, Godsell's boss, Du was a member of the Commission and ensured that Anglo's analysis found its way into the final reports. Vihan rejected the longer-term viability of racial labour regulation and recommended biting the bullet of legal registration of black trade unions. He was to go on to make specific recommendations about the mining industry in the Commission's sixth report in 1981. These recommendations forced the hand of the mine owners and created the prospect of systematic and large-scale organization of black mine workers. Legislation rapidly followed, which transformed the labor relations terrain. A representative National Manpower Commission was established, and a new Labor Relations Act passed that made possible the recognition of black trade unions. It seemed that the disorderly world of unofficial strikes was soon to be replaced by an orderly process of bargaining and negotiation, characterized by compliant trade unions and obedient labored bosses. Sadly for Anglo, this outcome was not to be. Oppenheimer suspected that if Anglo unionized first, its unions might become surrogate political parties given the absence of representative democracy. Godsell confesses that the reformers did not fully appreciate the intensity of the clash that would result from politics being channeled through unions. There was a degree of naivety in my thinking and that of my colleagues. While Anglo tried to depoliticize the modernization of industrial relations, black consciousness activists were simultaneously turning to unions precisely as agents of political mobilization. Sir Ramaphosa once claimed that detention had opened his eyes to the limitations of black consciousness and encouraged him to consider the merits of armed struggle. He was now, however, turning to the more promising alternative of trade union action. In this, he was far from alone. A whole generation of educated activists, frustrated by the lack of a black consciousness political strategy, was working its way towards the black union movement. Even within Sasso and the Black People's Convention themselves, debate was turning to class analysis and to the analytical power of the classic Marxist text. Harassment and bannings from 1977 had undercut the claims of student activists that they could act as the vanguard of the struggle. For those educated in Durban, the early 1970s labor unrest focused minds on organized workers who seemed to be potential agents of political unrest. Intellectuals like Jay Naidu, who had been nurtured in the black consciousness philosophy, decided that the priority was to organize the workers. In 1979, he volunteered to work for the recently established Federation of South African Trade Unions, FOSATU, an umbrella organization for unions that were concerned primarily with shop floor issues. Naidu was guided by a formidable mentor called Pravin Gordon, known to the Indian political elite that passed through the University of Durban Westville as the Guru. Gordon told Naidu to conceal his political ideology and adopt Fosatu's philosophy of shop-floor organisation. At that time, Fosatu was a well-known workerist federation one in which the organization of workers at shop floor level was given priority over the attempt to deploy organized workers in political protests. This was collective bargaining unionism, in which the focus was on issues in the workplace and wider political engagement was left to other organizations. Such unionism could be contrasted with political or social movement unionism, which sought alliances with outside social forces in civil society or to advance the project of the Exile Liberation Movement. Such social movement unions tried to link workplace issues with a wider anti-state protest. The contrast between two kinds of unions was in fact exaggerated. The wider social order of apartheid impinged on the workplace and shop floor issues could never be addressed in isolation from wider political change. For Satu's view, that sound shop floor organization was a necessary foundation for wider political engagement was in fact cogent, and many large unions managed to steer a path between workerism and what was labeled by its critics as populism. Nevertheless, these differences and the complex philosophies that lay behind them made the process of building unity between workers' organizations extremely hard. Ishmael Mkabela, Cyril's long-time friend from Chawello and Turfloop remembers discussing the prospects of the union movement with Cyril in 1978. The two men met at Commissioner Street in downtown Johannesburg next to the Urban Foundation offices where Hope Ramaphosa was then working. Ishmael observed to Cyril that they knew too little about the unions and that it was unfortunate how few black university graduates were involved in union activity. Cyril agreed. yes. Somehow we all avoid that, and observed that the unions are where our people are. Ishmael was later to approach Firoshul Kame, the General Secretary of the Council of Unions of South Africa, KUSA, to ask if he might work as an organiser. Kame simply laughed. Ishmael was annoyed at the time, and his annoyance grew still more intense two years later when Kame recruited Ramaphosa into the Union Federation. Ramaphosa's interest in union organization was therefore part of a wider rethinking of the limitations of black consciousness and a search for new instruments for political opposition to apartheid. This broader change of perspective was catalyzed by Cyril's personal experiences into a decision to commit himself to union work. The key, he recalled in a January 1995 interview, was a deep concern about the plight of mine workers. As a young man, he had often seen mine workers herded together on the platforms at Johannesburg's railway station as they travelled between the mines and their distant rural homes. After Ramaphosa had been arrested for a pass offence in Chiavello when he was 17 or 18, the sight of the mine workers being herded like cattle always brought back his anger at the way he himself had been treated. These workers, he came to realise, were never free of their chains. Ramaphosa's interest in trade union power even began to extend to popular culture. One of his favorite movie performances was Sylvester Stallone's portrayal of a union boss in the 1978 film Fist. The Norman Jewison-directed film traces the rise to power of Johnny Kovac, played by Stallone, who rises to the head of the Federation of Interstate Truckers, or Fist, The film is evidently based on the career of the legendary Teamsters union boss, Jimmy Hoffa, whose organization ultimately turned into an instrument of despotic personal power. Hoffa was surrounded by rumors of mafia relationships, convicted in 1967 of fraud and corruption, and ultimately vanished without a trace in 1975. Fist traces the role of this hero with a dark side, exploring how he organized ordinary workers, learnt the dark arts of mass persuasion, and ultimately used the power of organized labor in industrial action. The film also addresses with some sensitivity the human cost of industrial action. One scene dwells on the death of colleagues in strikes that Kovac has himself ordered. Towards its end, the movie reflects on the more broadly corrupt nature of the relationship between bosses and union leaders. It is the system that is sick and not merely the bosses and the corruption of that relationship reaches down through the union itself. It is not clear whether the subtleties of Jewison's direction were primary factors in capturing Ramaphosa's imagination. According to Searle himself, what interested him most was the negotiations process that they were involved in. When Sylvester Stallone was leading the negotiating team on the union side, And they were pushing for a 5.5% wage increase and they offered them 5 and for that half a margin they decided to go on strike. And he stands up and he says to the bosses, do you know what a strike can do to you? We're going to squash you. And he stands up dramatically and he walks out. The following day everyone is on strike. And that was the drama that really attracted me. The film was unusual for the Hollywood of its time in exploring the moral ambiguities facing the key role players. It dwells on the symmetry of instrumental violence between bosses and union members, a matter that was to become a central preoccupation in Ramaphosa's later union and ANC careers. In Jewison's portrayal of industrial conflict, the workers start out fighting the evil of consolidated trucking, but it is in the nature of their struggle that the union comes to resemble its enemy. Cyril took a clear decision to work in the trade union sector and upon his departure from EFK Tucker, he combined legal study with the completion of a brief diploma in industrial relations taken at Damlin College. The twin facts that he found himself in a so-called Black Consciousness Union Federation and that he became involved in organizing mine workers were each partly fortuitous. In 1981, Cyril applied for a job with the Furniture and Allied Workers Union, an affiliate of the controversial white Tuxa Federation. A majority of Tuxa members repeatedly affirmed that the Federation should act only on behalf of white worker unions or on behalf of black workers only when this would also be to the benefit of whites. Disgruntled employees of Tuxa, critical of its approach to black unionism, together with some members of the South African Congress of Trade Unions, or SACTU, created the Urban Training Project, UTP, an NGO designed to increase awareness among African unionists about industrial organization for nascent black unions funded primarily by external donors. Ramaphosa was taken on by UTP. Soon afterwards, however, the organisation decided that the appropriate site for its legal clinic was the New Council of Unions of South Africa, or CUSA, and when the clinic was transferred, Cyril moved with it. Pirashor Kame, the General Secretary of CUSA, immediately recognised ramaphosa's potential. In particular, his work at EFK Tucker, dealing with complex legal issues around land tenure, made him unusually experienced for a black lawyer at that time. Kame enthusiastically put Cyril to work in kuza's small legal resources centre, little realising how quickly the new recruit was going to transform the Labour Federation.